The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. We'll read together. In two passages, take over to chapter 2 for a second in verses 11 to 22, and then we're going to go back to verse 11 of chapter 1 and read a few verses there. But for context, I want to read chapter 2, verses 11 to 22 first. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near." For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord." in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And then back over to chapter 1 and verses 11 to 14. We'll read together. It says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Let's ask for God's blessing again. Father in heaven, this morning again, as we come to your word and we open it together, and Father, we would read and we would expound its truth. Father, we ask the Spirit of God would take these truths and impress them deeply upon our hearts. Father, if there is one in this room who does not know you, who has never heard and believed and knows what it is to hope in you, Father God, we pray We cry out to you, O God, that you would give that one no rest, but you would draw him close, him or her, that they might know the truth and the joy and the wonder of your salvation. And Father, we ask you these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. 24 years ago, about this time of year, I made a very hesitant, trembling phone call. Asked to speak with a young lady and uh, invited her to come out to dinner with me. And she agreed. We were friends from youth groups for years gone by. And then I, she said, well, where are we going? And, and who's going? And I said, well, it would just be you and I, and we're going to go to a place called the uh, Oak Bay Cafe. And the, there's a silence on the phone. Oh, 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 okay. And she agreed. And we went out to dinner. It was one of those trembling affairs that every guy goes through. Polished myself up as best as I could. You know, the only so much you can do with what you're given. And uh, picked her up with the flower and all the rest of that. And we had a wonderful time together. And then about three months later, I did the next thing that guys do that's hopefully once in their life with great fear and trembling. I drove her up to the top of Cypress Bowl, which is a beautiful mountain in Vancouver. And there with the snow on the ground and the lights of the city in the background. And it was absolutely beautiful and colder than today. I'll tell you that much for sure. Go down on one knee and I asked her to marry me. And that beautiful blonde girl said, yes, she would marry me. I had wooed and I had won my bride. And December 4th, 1993, I stood in a room like this, fear and trembling all over, praying that she'd actually show up. You know, you, you have those moments. And the doors opened and she came in. On my knee up on top of that mountain, I gave her a ring. I took that ring and she put on her finger. And that ring, everywhere that we went for the first couple of days after that, she just, you know, it was amazing how her hand always had to be up here and always had to be catching the light so that everybody would see there was this diamond ring on her finger. You see, I, I had wooed and I had won and I had claimed Heather to be my bride. And she wanted everybody to know around her that she belonged to somebody else. Now in the Bible times when a young man betrothed a girl to himself, that relationship was as binding as marriage itself. If there was sexual infidelity, it was considered adultery and fell under the law under that category. If there was a breakup of that relationship, that betrothal, it was broken up not by just a separation, give the ring back, go your separate ways, and carry on as if nothing had gone wrong. It was actually a divorce proceedings, according to the law. It was a solemn, binding arrangement. And the beautiful thing about our God and the gospel that we preach and the story of our salvation is that God has set His love upon us and He has claimed us as His own. We belong to the Lord our God. We are the bride of Christ. And the mark that carries us, that we carry with us isn't a ring like this. The mark that brands us and seals us and separates us and displays us to everybody around, both internally and externally, that we belong to Christ is the presence of the Spirit of God on us. And that Spirit of God is a mark that seals us and separates us as belonging to Christ. 
We no longer pursue other forms of faith, no longer pursue other religions, no longer pursue other ways in which to have joy and peace and happiness. We now have found it. And it's in Christ. So we finished off this section in Paul's uh, eulogy, these last verses, 11, 12, 13, and 14. It's kind of like the Father just tips over a little bit and he gives us a bit of a foretaste of what's coming in the next chapters. But it's a beautiful story about our engagement, our betrothal to the Son of God as his bride. I want to read the verses again in a different translation. This one's called the NET. I don't know that you can buy it in print here in Australia, but you can get it digitally. What it was is a translation developed for those who work translating the Bible from English and and the original languages into other third world country languages. And it reads like this. This is the NET. It says, In Christ we too have been claimed as God's own possession since we were predestined according to the one purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope or set our hope on Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. There are two stated propositions in the text and a third one that's kind of implied there. I want to unpack them all. I was so hoping yesterday as I was typing away and the Lord was giving me ideas and I was just kind of putting them all together that we would finish these this opening eulogy, this expression of Paul's praise today. But there was just too much in it, and I don't want to rush through. There's so much good stuff in this. So we'll finish two of these today and one next week. So what we're going to look at is three propositions. You should have them on your note sheet there. Some of you, I think four of you will have all three listed. The rest only have the first two. But they go like this. We have been claimed as God's possession. That's verse 11. That's a stated proposition there. He has claimed us. In my NASB, it says we have obtained an inheritance, and I'll explain that in a second. The second one is kind of an implied proposition. It's not stated right there, but the reality is we have responded. We've responded to the gospel. It says there, having believed, having heard, and we have hoped. Those are our responses to the gospel. And we'll look at that neat relationship between responsibility and God's sovereignty later on. Third thing is this. We have been sealed by God's Holy Spirit. And that's verse 14. Now I want you to notice there's a continuity. The whole thing's one sentence. So there has to be continuity. But there is a continuity from last week's message to this one. God's purpose is to gather all things under one. That's Christ, his headship. This week text, this week's text introduces us to the beauty of God's gathering both Jew and Gentile together into one new man, one new body. That's why I read Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, because it talks specifically about both being gathered into one new body, one new man, one new building, all different ways that Paul describes it there. Verses 11 to 14 is a hint of what's coming later in the epistle. Now notice something else here. In verse 11, this is all introduction. In verse 11, he says, we have been proclaimed, claimed, sorry, we have been claimed. 
There is a progression of pronouns in the passage. It's really important you pick these up. You say, what's a pronoun? If you don't know what a pronoun is, a pronoun is a little two, three-letter word that represents a noun. I could say, Dave is sitting over there, or I could say, he is sitting over there. He is the pronoun to describe Dave. Okay, so he says, we, that's the first one, have been claimed, speaking about Jewish believers in the Old Testament and New Testament times, so Jewish believers only. Then he says in verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ. That means, again, Jewish believers before the gospel went to the Gentiles. And then in verse 13, he says, verse 13, you heard and you believed. And Paul is directing his attention to the Gentile people in Ephesus who have also heard and have also believed. So the we and the we is speaking about Old Testament Jews. The you in verse 13 is speaking about Gentile believers. In verse 13, you were sealed, Gentile believers, in God. And then he says in verse 14, he speaks of our inheritance both together in one body, and that's so important. What's the implication of all this? Although he is speaking of Jews specifically in verses 11 and 12, and although he's speaking of Gentile believers in verse 13, verse 14 makes it clear that both have received all of those things. So when he says, we have been claimed by God, we can say it isn't just the Old Testament Jews. What he's saying right here refers to the Old Testament Jews. But we know from this text, from Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2 and so on, that it's all of us who have been claimed, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, both Jews and Gentile believers have been claimed by God. Both Jewish and Gentile believers have heard and believed the gospel. Both Jews and Gentiles have hoped in Christ. Jews beforehand, but Jew and Gentile together afterward. But Jew and Gentile believers are both God's own possession. Jewish and Gentile believers are all gathered together for the praise of the glory of God. His emphasis is like he's got Jewish believers in one hand and Gentiles in the other. And he's saying how God has brought them together. We and you, both our. Well, you say, if the truth really applies to all of us, why make a big deal about it? Why, why even take the time to talk about it in a sermon like this? The answer is, our goal, absolutely, as we study, as we preach, as we work through the Word of God, is to understand what the author's intention is when he wrote that text. It's so important. Why? If you hear someone say in a Bible study, you know, what this text means to me is... You can do this, because what it means to you, what it means to me, what it means to Myra or Dave or anybody else, doesn't matter. What's so important that we have to get a hold of is, what did God intend to communicate when he wrote that text? Because if we say, well, you know, it means this to con. And he has this idea, and it means this to me, and I have this idea, and there's no real standard. It all becomes completely arbitrary, and what in the end happens is the Word of God doesn't mean anything to anybody because it means everything to everybody. Make sense? So I want to make sure I don't, I point out 
what Paul is intending when he wrote that text so we don't misunderstand it. But I do want to make it very clear that all the things he's describing in 11, 12, and 13, they're all things that all believers enjoy. He's just emphasizing that it was Jews first and then Gentiles later, but all of us together in one inheritance. So, having said all of that, what is the main idea of the message this morning? It's this. God betrothed us all to himself as his people, his possession in Christ. He claimed us for himself. Like when I got down on my knee and I I asked Heather to be my bride and I, I gave her the ring, I was claiming her from myself. I was saying, this is mine. If some other guy came along and tried to ask her to marry him or try to take her for his wife, I would have something to say about it. I'd have a whole lot of things to say about it, frankly. You can't do that. She belongs to me. And God has claimed us and said, these are mine. They belong to me. And I'm going to mark them and seal them as my own by giving them the Holy Spirit. So God has betrothed us to himself. He claimed us for himself. We have responded to his claim in hearing and believing and hoping in Christ. And he marked us with his spirit to show everybody, including us, that we belong to Christ. So first of all, we were claimed by God as his people and his possession. Now notice the text in the translation. It says in verse number 11, we have obtained an inheritance in my NASB. And the ESV says the same thing. The NIV uses the word, we were chosen, which is a little closer, but it's not quite there. The idea, the word there is, I'll try to pronounce a Greek word so all the Greek people don't laugh. Ekleirothamen. I just have to say it slowly. It's a past tense, completed action, passive verb. It means that we receive the action that God has done. We were chosen in accordance with the will of God. We were claimed by God as his possession. Puvan loaned me a great commentary by a man named Honer, and he says it this way. We were made a heritage of God. We have been chosen as God's portion. Other guys describe it that way. So why translate it, we have been claimed as God's possession? Why have that? Why did I give it to you on your little sheet there? It includes the idea of God's choosing. It includes the passive sense. We received the action. It was done to us. We didn't do it ourselves. It also includes the idea of an inheritance. In the Old Testament, when Joshua took the people into the land and he separated all the different parts of the land, you know, Benjamin over here, Ephraim over here, Manasseh up there, Judah over there, and so on, he did it by lots. And the lots fell to this guy and he went that way. And the lot fell to this tribe and they went that way. So the idea of choosing by lot is actually captured in that word. So the idea of inheritance, like you have in NASB or ESV, we have obtained an inheritance that's in the word. It's a good translation, but to say we have been claimed as God's possession more accurately defines what that means. Now notice something else here, the inheritance issue. Who inherited what? Did we inherit something from God or did God take us as his portion, his possession? The word itself suggests that we are God's claim. We belong to God. We are His possession. The Old Testament also very clearly carries the same idea through. 
In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 20, it says, For the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, For the Lord's portion is his people. Right? Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Psalm 33 verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. We are the people of God. You say, how do you know that? I was talking about Israel. Ah, cool thing. Take your Bibles. Flip over to the book of 1 Peter. One of the things I love about Peter is he takes Old Testament texts and he applies them so clearly to us Gentile believers. And we are included, like Paul was saying in Ephesians 2, we are included in that inheritance. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. He's actually quoting the Old Testament, but he's applying it to Gentile believers. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. If you have a Bible like mine, NASB, look down your text, you should notice, but the but you is written in regular text, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, is all written in small capitals. What that's showing you is Peter is saying, but you, all you Gentile believers, including us, you are, and he applies the Old Testament description of God's people to all of us. So we're included in that. We are a chosen race and so on. Uh, verse number, end of verse 9. For God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's included us in that. Now back in first, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 there. Remember the pronouns again. Strictly speaking, Paul is referring to the Old Testament Jewish believers. But again, the context is our inheritance. We are God's portion. The inheritance that we have, it's there. Do you know what it is? Our inheritance is God himself. We inherit. He Just like I belong to Heather, she belongs to me. Now... I got the better deal. Everybody can see that. I get Heather. She's stuck with me, right? Poor girl. Now, beautiful. It's exactly like the situation between us and God. He is our inheritance and we are his portion, his possession. He claimed us for himself. Theologically and biblically, we can say that we are included with the Old Testament Jewish believers in the people of God. We Gentile believers with Jewish people are God's singular people. There is not two groups saved by God, Jewish and Gentile. We are all together, one new man, one new body, one new building, all built on the cornerstone who is Christ and all the foundation stones. I love that picture. I'm a builder. I love it. you got the, the foundation stones who are the apostles and the prophets built up against the cornerstone who is Christ. And on top of that, there is one new building, all the believers together, and it fits perfectly with God's purpose, which is what? To gather all things together under one head, who is Christ. He's both the headstone and the cornerstone. I love that picture. 
Notice also the context of God's claim. He says, in Christ. Christ is the context, the focus, the center of God's working. So what does it mean to be in Christ? A dear sister came up to me last Sunday morning and she said, Oh, I just, I love that phrase, but I can't quite get my head around what it means to be in Christ. It means to be identified with Christ. While we have baptism, you go down into the water identifying yourself as buried with Christ. You come up out of the water identifying yourself as raised with Christ. We are identified with Him. It also means we are united with Him. I got a privilege of working with Nick and Jess, these two young people from Casey Bible Church in their marriage. And we stood up there in this beautiful Presbyterian church down in uh, Melbourne. So, where, what was it, Daryl? Campbell Presbyterian? Yeah. Beautiful building. And we stand there, and they're sitting in front of us. And I said, you know what? You guys walk down this aisle, and Jessica, you walk down a single woman. And Nick, you walk down a single man. And you stood here, and you were married before God. And when you turn around and walk back down the aisle, you are not the same. You now have become one flesh, one person, one body. And it's the exact same picture for us in Christ. We are united with Christ. We are in Him and He is in us. We are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are in Romans eight seventeen fellow heirs with Christ. Just as Christ is inheriting from the Father, we, united to Him, inherit with Him. When Heather's... Uh, uncle and then her mom later away later on passed away there was inheritance given it didn't say for heather atwood but not nelson atwood it said for heather and nelson atwood why because we're one flesh the inheritance that she received became mine by the fact that we are united in Christ means we're united with Christ. It's a union between Christ and a believer in which both remain distinguishable persons but are bound inseparably together in dying and living. That's what it means. You cannot listen. It's a union that includes the reality of being in union with the body of Christ. And this is an important thing. All over this world... In Christianity, you're, we're seeing people leaving the church. I'm fed up with the church. I just want Christ. I'm fed up with being part of a local body that doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So I'm going to leave and I just take Christ with me. That's impossible. You can't do that. You cannot divorce the church from Christ because they are bound together just as we are in Christ, two separate persons, but bound together. So the church is made up of people who are all united with Christ. He is the context of God's claiming us. The Father, in a sense, claimed the Son, and we in the Son are claimed with Him, if you like it that way. One way to understand it. It means we belong to Christ. Just as a betrothed woman belongs to her betrothed man, the logic is God claimed us by means of our unitedness with Christ. It is through being in Christ, in whom are all things summed up, that God has claimed us with Him. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. We are united with Christ. That's the context of God's claim. Notice the basis of it. Very briefly, he says, having been predestined. Now, we looked at this a few weeks ago at our predestined to be adopted. And we saw it was God's prior work 
before the foundation of the world. God's claiming us for his own people, his own portion based on his predestining us. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Nobody compelled God to do it. He set his love on us. Why? Because he set his love on us. Why? Because he had grace. Why? Because he had grace. He didn't have to. It was according to the counsel of his own will. Meaning what? That the Godhead sat in counsel and agreed together that they would do this without anybody putting any influence. He didn't look at you and say, you know, you're not such a bad person. Everybody around you is pretty bad, but you're not so bad, so I'll just choose you. No, that would be compulsion by your goodness. It doesn't work that way. God set his love on us and he chose us. He predestined us simply because he wanted to. That's a beautiful thing. Notice the purpose of God's claim there. It's to the praise of his glory. There is a reason. There's a goal in mind for all that God does. We saw it last week. He is gathering together everything, every person under Christ to stand around and do what? Look at each other. When we get to heaven, what are we going to do? I know a, lot, a bunch of people want to go up to Eve and kick her in the shins because she ate a bite out of a piece of fruit. No, we're not going to be doing that. I know I've thought about myself. I want to go up and talk to Spurgeon. How did you do it? Go talk to Paul. I don't understand some of the things you wrote, Paul. Peter didn't understand them. And how did you explain it to me? Are we going to do that? The reality is, no, we're not. Yeah, we'll be with Spurgeon and with Paul and with Calvin and Augustine and all those other greats and, and, and a host, myriads of others, great men and women that the world never heard their names and we'll be with them and we'll enjoy fellowship with them. But you know what the purpose of our being there is? To the praise of the glory of His grace. When we see ourselves... Up there with him, knowing what we did before, knowing our sin, we're going to be so overwhelmed by the grace of God that we will spend all that time around just adoring and wondering and rejoicing and praising God's grace. That's the purpose of it all. He's claiming us for a purpose. He's gathering a people together. So what do we do with all this? Paul's main point in this sentence, a single sentence from verse 3 to verse 14, is still the same. Worthy of praise is God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. I titled every sermon the same. Worthy is, or God is worthy to be praised, comma, with a reason behind it. Because I want to drive that point home. It's, in a way, it's actually tough to preach this passage. In some ways, it's not, obviously. It's a great passage to preach. But there's no real practical application of what you do with the text other than the fact that you rejoice and enjoy what God has done. You rejoice in God. You live your lives praising God. You live your lives being thrilled with God, falling in love with God all over again. But Paul's main point is God is worthy of praise who has blessed us with all these things. He has blessed us by choosing us and predestining us, by adopting us, by redeeming us, by forgiving us, by working together to gather us together under Christ's headship and claiming us for His possession to be a people, priests, and kings to declare the excellencies of Christ, His perfections. I love that phrase in First Peter. What's this for? It's to declare the excellencies of Christ. But you know what that is? It isn't just a future thing. It's a now thing, too. 
What do we do when we get together in Sunday morning to worship? We are declaring the excellencies of God to each other. And we're also, in a sense, declaring them to God. Just like the angels who never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We get together as a company of people and we lift up our hearts and our voices and we declare the excellencies of God to God in worship and to each other to remind each other of the great things that God has done. Rejoice, Christian. God has betrothed you to his son. God is uniting you in one body together under the headship of Christ. God has chosen you to be his inheritance, his portion. God has set his love on you. That's an amazing thought. His love is set on you. There's a phrase, I think it's in uh, Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets, that one day God will sing a song of love over us. You ever been in one of those wedding moments where the bride sings or the groom sings and you can just see in those two people up there. I, I was in a wedding party of a friend of mine and um, his, his bride made an arrangement with everybody except for her, the groom. That when that moment came, if she could do it emotionally, she was going to sing a song for him. And she took the mic from the, the guy officiating, and then that was the signal to hit the music, and she started to sing. In that moment, it, it was amazing, because we're all there in our finery, and we're all watching this beautiful wedding procedure. But as I watched, I could see her eyes, and I could see just the corner of his, and I could see the tear going down his face as she was singing. He was a tough, sparky. In that moment, everybody else in the room just disappeared. There was only two people there as she sang the song of love to him. And the Bible tells us that in a day to come, the Father is going to sing a song of love over us. Beloved, listen. You are loved with a love that knows no measure, no comparison. He set his love on you. God has chosen you to be his son's bride. Christ has promised an eternity in the most intimate relationship ever known, the marriage supper of the Lamb, bride and bridegroom together there. Trust the Lord, Christian. Think about God and what he has done for you. And you hold back some of those things that you're struggling with and think, I can't give this to God because, you know, I trust him for my salvation, but this is too heavy. I'll, I'll have to carry it by myself. No. If a God can do that for you, and he has, you can trust him with every part of your life. You can let go of all those hurts, all those fears, all those struggles, all those issues you're dealing with, and you can give them to God in trust that he knows what to do with them. We read through these passages and we study through what God has done. It ought to inspire us more and more and more to walk in trust and love for God. And get busy, Christian, declaring the praises of God Most High. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, that's your role. That's your joy, is to declare the praises of God. Like a bride running around, showing all her friends 
the, the ring that she's got, and telling all her friends about her betrothed and how wonderful he is and tall, dark, and handsome and all that other stuff. And the guy goes around, and he's so thrilled that he's got this young girl, and she's going to marry him, and he tells all his mates how beautiful she is and how wonderful she is. It's the same for us. We are his people to declare the excellencies. I love that word. It isn't just the goodnesses and the niceness, and the beauty. It's the excellencies of Christ to anybody who will listen. Second main point is this. We responded to God as His people and His possession. Notice again, the center and object of the gospel is in Christ. Look what he says in verse number Verse number 13, he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. He is the center and the object of the gospel. We're going to come back to that just a bit later. Notice also in the text, Paul shows our response to God. He mentions in verse 11, those who hoped in Christ. In verse 12, you having heard the word of truth. And verse uh, 12 again, you having believed in Christ, hoping, hearing, and believing are all responses that we make to God. Now I want to use Paul's mention of these things as kind of a springboard to mention and remind us that we are responsible to God. All of us are responsible. I have been emphasizing as much as I can the sovereignty of God and salvation through all these verses because it's clearly there. Does that sovereignty remove our responsibility? The answer is no, it does not. In fact, God's sovereignty includes our responsibility. And our responsibility is in two senses, in two forms. We are responsible in terms of being accountable to God for our lives. He will hold us accountable for how we have lived. Second of all, we are responsible in terms of the liability that we have incurred for failing to live as we were designed and created to live. God will return. And he will judge all the nations of the earth. He will hold us all accountable for whether we have lived according to the image of God that we were created in or not. That's the basis. Every single person is created in the image and likeness of God. He will hold us accountable. Did you live out the image I created you in? No, we won't. We haven't. We fail miserably. Paul's great statement of the gospel Right? For all have sinned and fallen short means failed to glorify God in everything we do. God will return and judge us on that basis. But praise God, there's another sense in which we are responsible to God. We're not just responsible in accountability for how we lived. We're not just responsible in liability. Every sin we commit incurs a debt. And God is going to come and demand full payment. In very business-like terms. But praise God, there is another sense in which we are responsible to God. He has revealed Himself to us. All creation, the Bible says, testifies to the glory of who God is. Remember they're walking into the, into the Jerusalem, and Jesus is there, and all the little kids are going along, and they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, praise, and so on. And the Pharisees come along, tell the kids to be quiet, make them stop. And Jesus turns and says, if they stop crying out these things, the very rock themselves will cry out. 
What's the psalmist say? The heavens declare the glory of God. What does Paul say in Romans? All creation testifies to the glory of God. All you have to do is walk out that door and look around and you see the glory of God in three dimension. All of it in its own terms, its own language, shouting the glory of God. We are responsible for how we respond to that revelation. God has also revealed himself to us through his written word. I love the fact that when he creates the heavens and the earth, what happens? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said. He spoke to it. And in speaking, he called into existence all these things, and he formed and fashioned all of creation with a spoken word. God loved his creation and began speaking to it as soon as he had created it, and he still spoke to it all the way through. The absolute culmination point of that speaking is when the Lord Jesus comes and God speaks through him to all of us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the high point of all God's revelation. We are responsible to God for that revelation. Remember when you're in a math class? There's always that one kid in the front row, you know. Teacher, teacher, are we responsible for this? Do we have to know this? And when I was in an accounting class, I did uh, accounting in university for a little while, and uh, this one guy, every class, he'd ask the same thing. Well, do we have to know this? And finally, we're all kind of going, oh, be quiet. And finally, teacher around said, look, if you didn't need to know it, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> and that shut him up, and he just kept writing. We're responsible for what God has given us. The Word of God before us. I plead with you to be in the Word of God, to read it, to memorize it, to study it. I also do that with a certain sense of fear and trembling, knowing the more you read, the more you study, the more you know and understand, the more you are responsible for. We are responsible for this. God commands us in His Word in the clearest possible terms to love God, love our neighbors, love our enemy. I am, we are all responsible to love the Lord our God in obedience to Him. God commands us in His Word to repent of sin, turn our backs on it. We are all responsible to obey that command. God commands us in His Word to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We are responsible. The only sin that you cannot be forgiven for is a sin of refusing to believe and refusing to repent. That's it. God commanded us to do those things. We're responsible for them. Listen, get asked all the time, how do we know? If we are God's chosen, predestined people, one of the great wrestlings about predestination and election and those topics is, well, how do we know? And the answer is we don't know, but God gives us one very simple clue that will help us understand, and it's simply this. Those that are God's chosen, predestined people will believe. That's the only way we can know. So when I preach the gospel, do I have any idea who's chosen or not? Nope, not a clue. How will I know for sure in a later day? Those that believe and carry on will show by their belief that they are chosen of God. It's as simple as that. The only way we know is when they believe. So the answer for us as far as Christians goes is stop worrying about who's chosen and who's not. Preach the gospel to anybody who will listen. If they won't listen, preach it harder. 
Go at it again and again and again. Don't let them go. Keep preaching. Some of the most stubborn people who refused to listen to the gospel in the history of the church, when they were saved, God used them greatly and powerfully. John Bunyan comes to mind. Paul the Apostle comes to mind. He pushed back. You kick against the pricks, God said to him. We preach the gospel. Listen, God has done the choosing before time began. God has called us and commanded us to do the preaching. God will do the saving. That's his business. We get busy and we love them and we preach the gospel and we call on anybody who will listen to repent. Notice our first necessary response. He says, having heard the gospel. Our obedient response is to hear the truth of the gospel. God graciously gives us wisdom to understand the gospel, but we must hear it. I remember, I think every believer in the room can remember that moment when you heard the gospel and it made sense. I've told you before, I'll tell you again. Sitting in a room in a friend's house somewhere in rural Victoria in a little camp for kids. And hearing the gospel and seeing the diagram up on the board and going, yeah, I get it. That makes sense. That's right. It's clear as a bell. And I pushed back against it with everything I could. Come out of the exclusive brethren. I'd seen religion used for the most horrible things. And pushed back. I don't want anything to do with this. I know it's right. I know it's true. But Ad asked me one day when, before I got saved, he said, do you, if you died today, where would you go? I had no answer. Oh, I had an answer, but I couldn't bring my mouth to say it. I go to hell. Because I knew without a shadow of doubt, listen, we need to hear the gospel. Romans 10, 17 says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That is given in the context of preaching the word of God. We need to hear it. There's no salvation available without our hearing the word of truth, but God sovereignly guarantees that some will hear it. I don't preach the gospel in the hopes that a few might hear. I preach the gospel with all my heart because I have the promise of Scripture that some will hear it and some will respond and some will be saved. Notice our second necessary response, having believed in Christ. It is our obedient response to believe the truth. What's faith? What is faith? You ever ask some of those questions? Like some of those simple things. What does faith mean? In Romans 4.21, the Bible says that Abraham was, in my New King James, he was convinced, or NASB, he was fully assured that what God had promised, he's able to perform. I'm absolutely convinced without a shadow of a doubt that God is able to keep every promise he made to me. My faith is in him. It's not in a set of facts. If someone comes to you or you think in your mind, listen, I know that Jesus died on the cross. I know that he went and buried in a tomb. I know that he rose again. I know that the, I know, I know, I know. Therefore, I'm saved, right? No. Salvation is not agreement to a set of facts. We know the facts, but we trust in God. Take your Bibles, flip over. Romans 4. Romans 4, this is probably, the, to me, then the Scripture, one of the best illustrations of what faith is. From verse 19, we'll read down to verse 25. 
Paul is talking about Abraham and Sarah, and he says, Without becoming weak in faith, he, that's Abraham, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured, being convinced that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Stop for a second. Notice what he says there. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, not the facts, who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Believing that Jesus died and buried and was risen again, that doesn't save you. It's believing in God who has done those things. That's what saves a man or a woman or a child. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. He suffered for our sins. And in the last phrase, and was raised up because of our justification. We have faith in God. There is no salvation. There is no knowing all these great things of God. There is no knowing of God himself until we believe. That's why Paul says, having heard and having believed, those were the prerequisites. Then you were sealed. With God's Holy Spirit. Listen to the promises of God. Faith is trusting God who is able to keep His promises. God promised in Isaiah 30 verse 15, if we repent of sin, He will save us. God promised in Romans 4, 20-25, we just read it, that if we trust Him, Christ's death will be the satisfactory payment for the debt of my sin. When I stand before the judge and He issues the bill, your sin, the liability that you have incurred, I can say yes, and Christ has paid it in full. He promised us in Ephesians 2 verse 8, by faith fully and totally in God, faith in God, He will save us. God promises in Romans 4, Romans 4 verse 5 that if we trust Him, He will apply Christ's righteousness to our account without that application of all the righteousness of Christ to us, there is no salvation. All of the goodness, that's not the right way to say it, all the right state, the right action of Christ is taken and applied to your account. So when you stand before God, all of Christ's righteousness is applied to you and you are seen as righteous because, guess what? You're in Christ. That righteousness is put to your account. And you stand before God with His righteousness. What will be our one claim when we stand before the Father? I have the righteousness of Christ applied to me. How do you have it applied, Nelson? Because I trust Him. I believe Him. And He will keep His promises. God promised us in Philippians 1 verse 6, if we trust Him, He will finish the work He began in us. Having faith in God, believed in Christ, is to throw ourselves completely on Him as the only one able to keep those promises. We believe the word of gospel truth. We must believe God for His promises. 
God graciously gives us the faith to believe. What an amazing God we have. He claimed us to be His own. Notice the last thing there. The believing response is we hoped in Christ. In verse 12, it's we behoped beforehand. Those are the Old Testament Jewish believers who hoped in the Messiah. The whole time through the Old Testament wanderings, they were looking for and hoping in the Messiah, the one that was to come. What did God say to the woman outside the Garden of Eden? You're going to have a seed. He will crumb. The serpent will bite his heel, but the seed will crush the head of the serpent. They were looking from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Old Testament. They're looking for this one who will come. They're looking for the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And finally in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is down there by the Jordan baptizing people in the river. And he looks up and looks across the way and the Spirit of God opens his eyes to see who that is. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We ho- they hoped in the Messiah. We hope in Christ. We have a hope beyond this world. We have a hope because Christ is coming back. What are you hoping in? Where is your hope? Having believed, having heard, having believed, Having been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, we hope in Him. Bride in those days, she's been betrothed. She goes back to her father's house. He goes off his way and he, I think he earns the money to pay the bride price and so on. And one day he sends word, I'm coming. Get ready. And one day he comes to claim his bride and she gets herself ready. And the whole time between their betrothal and the day that he comes back, all she's looking forward to is the voice that cries out, he's coming. All she's hoping in is the day when her betrothed will come over the hill riding the horse in all of his finery and she'll be all prepared and he will take her for himself as his bride and they will be together forever. She hopes in his appearing. We, as those who have been saved and washed clean by the blood of Christ, who have believed in God, are now hoping in Him. What are you hoping in? I so badly wanted to carry on, talk about the sealing, God's seal. We'll come back to it next week. But listen, my question I've got to ask Have you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you heard that God is infinitely holy and perfectly just? Have you heard that God is fully righteous? Have you heard that God is love, desiring to share His glory and fellowship with all His creation? Have you heard that God purposed from all things for His glory. He created mankind in His image and in His likeness to declare His praises everywhere, to show the glory of God to all of creation. Have you heard this? But have you heard, have you seen in your own life that mankind has sinned? Mankind is born in sin. We commit sin. We love sin. All the while hating God. Man is utterly, 
unwilling and unable to come to God. Sin corrupts our nature. Sin is disobedience to God's will and God's word. Sin is our failure to glorify God in everything that we do. Sin is our failure to love God with all of our heart, all our soul, and all our mind, and all our strength. I don't care how good of a person you think you are. You have not loved God the way that God called you and commanded you to, and so you have failed. But God... Ephesians 2, verse 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, He sent His Son into the world, born of a woman. Our Lord Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life, obedient to God. But God delivered Him over to a horrific death on a cross. And God raised Jesus from the dead and declared that He is the Son of God with power. Listen. Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty for sin. Jesus' death is the only effective for those who believe in him. It's full supply. There's enough for everybody to believe and be saved, but it's only effective for those who believe. The bad news is is bad. Refusing to believe, refusing to repent, you must pay your own penalty by yourself and you will spend eternity paying it for it is by grace that we have been saved not of ourselves it's all the gift of God that's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news have you heard it if I could beg You heard the message, but not just heard the facts. Have you believed? Are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? I can stand up here all day long. I I can go another hour and just keep preaching. It would make the difference. I am also fully aware it is a work of the Spirit of God. And so I put it out to you. I give you the message. I ask you, have you heard? And I ask you, have you believed? If you have believed, you will know the hope and the joy and the peace that only God can give. But if you do not, then I also plead that the Spirit of God would give you no rest. I'd rather be a little unkind and pray that God would trouble your soul mercilessly until you repent and believe and know for sure that you are saved and to let you go off comfortable all the way to hell. We have a great Savior. We have an awesome God. He has claimed us as His own. Are you in Christ? Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing.